You want to turn your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, the 24th chapter. While you're turning there, let me say what a delight it has been to be able to do three consecutive Wednesdays with you guys. Uh, Jackie and I, Jackie's got to come with me every time. We've enjoyed our drive through the country, and uh, it's been really nice to be able to come and and to kind of develop a stair step of lessons. This lesson will be a little different. Um, One of the mistakes I made as an early Bible student was too much compartmentalization. You get a passage of Scripture, and as a preaching student, they taught us expository preaching without notes. You have a key word, and from that key word, you try to get a list. Uh, Three admonitions, three encouragements, three warnings, three examples... And you tend to, I don't know, paralysis by analysis, I guess. Sometimes I encourage you to read the Bible in large chunks. When we start in Matthew 24, you're going to have two scenes. One, the disciples in Jesus are leaving Jerusalem, and there's an exchange. And then the next scene, Jesus and the disciples are on the Mount of Olives, and they ask him a question. From the point that he begins to answer that question, there's a continuous dialogue from Jesus all the way through the end of chapter 25. He tells three stories. And a lot of times as preachers, and and we do it to ourselves because we have to develop so much material, we tend to preach an entire sermon on this parable, an entire sermon on this parable, and an entire sermon on this parable. Well, that's not what Jesus did. He didn't develop those thoughts out. He gave three quick examples in order to answer a question. Uh, When your Bible was written, it wasn't divided by chapters and verses. So don't get caught up in the chapters and verses. Uh, A lot of times I think Jesus taught using what I call a didactic triad uh, in in the story of the, the lost son, the prodigal son. There's not three different lessons there, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost boy. He's sitting at dinner... He's surrounded by sinners, and they complain that he's spending his time with sinners, and he takes that opportunity to say, how would you react if you lost a sheep? How would you react if you lost a piece of silver? How do you react at lost people? And instead of those being three different stories, he brings those stories together to make a point. This is the value you place on a sheep. This is the value you place on an object. And this is the value you place on people, and it's not the same as your father. And although there's some good lessons to be learned by by extrapolating all that information, the real point of that was your value systems. The value placed on an animal, a coin, and people. Same thing here. When he begins this discussion, he's going to tell three stories that, that prepare them for a crescendo or come to a conclusion. Um, and I think it's one of those things I've... I don't ever title my lessons very much. Uh, I preach expository, and so they're filed according to the text. Well, when you do meetings, they say we have to have titles to put in the paper. So I call this lesson the duh-huh lesson. Are you familiar with the concept of the duh-huh? This means yes. This means no. All right, you know, duh-huh is that obvious stuff. When Lonnie Beth told us that she was uh, expecting Gunner, I began to shop babies. I would look around at people who had little babies, and I would think, well, that's interesting. I wonder if mine will have those options, you know. And so I started looking at babies. So I'm in Walmart early, early one morning. And I have to go to Walmart very early in the morning because I'm a fugitive from the EPA. I mix up this concoction that I put on my fence line, and it works. 
but if they ever find out what I'm putting in the ground, they'll put me under the prison. And so I have to shop early so the EPA doesn't catch me. I mix up some stuff. Two summers ago, I killed a telephone pole. And so, um, so I was in Walmart, you know, doing my clandestine ninja shopping, and this young man comes around the corner with a side-by-side stroller and two little fat babies in it. And this kid looked like he hadn't slept in years. He's just kind of waddling behind that stroller. And around the corner behind him comes a little girl. And she's got the third one on her shoulder. Well, anybody sitting here knows what that is, right? And I couldn't help myself. It's like I had a a string tied to my face. And I walked up to that little boy and said, are those triplets? Well, yeah. You know what I expected? No, the fourth one's in the car. We ran out of arms. Yeah, everybody in the room knew they were triplets. I hunt on a place called Kill Mountain. Hardy Kill left the Trail of Tears and hid out on that mountain until they passed by, and he settled that mountain. And I've met Hardy Kill III. Uh, I don't know which generation he is of the Kill family, but they owned a lot of that mountain, and I hunt up there. Now, to get there, you've got to drive through the drive through at Hardy's in Gurley. I don't know if you knew that or not, but it's on the map. So I'm sitting there one morning, 5.30 in the morning, wearing camouflage boots, camouflage pants, a camouflage shirt, camouflage gloves, a camouflage hat, and got a camouflage bow in the front seat of my car. Little girl hands that biscuit out the window and says, you going hunting? <laughs> I said, nope, there's an Indian problem on Kill Mountain, and we're trying to fight fair. I mean, that's what's going to happen. When Jesus tells these stories and we put them in context, we're going to go, well, yeah. But then when he brings them together, it's not just, well, duh. It's a duh-huh moment. Matthew 24, verse 1. Now, Jesus went out and departed from the temple. His disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Because he ends up on the Mount of Olives, I'm assuming he's leaving the northeast corner gate of the temple. He's going to walk down the side of Mount Moriah. They're going to go through the Kidron Valley and go up the side of the Mount of Olives. When you walked outside this temple, you're on the side of Mount Moriah, and the temple could have been as high as 16 stories on that side. Now, just, I guess, Bible trivia, Mount Moriah is where God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And when God told Solomon, you build my temple there, if this is the temple, on the back corner of the temple is a Roman fortress, or it used to be the Roman fortress Antonio. And when Jesus stands in the judgment seat with Pilate, and Pilate condemns him to die, he is within a football field of where God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. These locations are not coincidental. This is not an accident. Now, the original temple that Solomon built had a footprint about like a basketball court. It would have been about 90 feet long and about 50 feet wide. Might have been two stories. Now, it was, it was opulent. It was ornate. It was overlaid. Everything was overlaid and hammered gold. The nails were made out of gold. It gets destroyed. They rebuild the temple under Ezra. And then this is a modification of the temple. Herod takes 40 years to build this thing. And it's got the original footprint with the outer sanctuary, the inner sanctuary, and then the Holy of Holies, but it was probably three stories high. And you had dormitories and porches and colonnades 
and pillars and pools. And you had the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women and the court of the men. And this wasn't just a building. It was a campus. It was a massive undertaking. And so when the disciples walk out and look at this thing and they see it towering up above them on the side of Mount Moriah, you know, they're like, man, look at this building. Isn't this magnificent? Isn't this marvelous? And Jesus kind of reigns on their parade. He said, don't you see this? He said, no, I could be one stone left on top of the other. And I think that's a conversation killer. I think it quietens them down. And again, just Bible trivia, some of the blocks in the temple were large enough they'd fill up this space between those two columns there out to here. They were quarried, hand-cut, and drug into place. And some of the stones underneath the temple uh, foundation still have the big pedestals where you'd attach ropes and had people drag them. The quarry where those stones came from is about 650 yards outside the western side of the temple. And if you've ever seen a rock quarry, you know what it looks like, right? Just bare rock. This particular rock quarry got the nickname the skull. And the stone the builders rejected was crucified in the rock quarry on Golgotha, on the hill of Calvary, the skull. These things aren't accidental and not coincidental. They walk outside the temple. Lord, look at this massive building. This building. Look, it's not going to be standing. And he continues to walk. You ever had anybody around on your parade? I used to do push-ups. I still do a few, but I used to really do push-ups. And when I moved to Harding University, my dorm room, I could touch both walls. Now, you remember how tall I am. That's not a very big room, okay? My wingspan is five foot four. I could touch both walls, so I'd go out in the hallway and do my push-ups. I'd be out there doing my push-ups, and a dude named Kevin Klein, not the underwear guy, but a different guy. Kevin Klein would walk up and put his foot in the middle of my shoulder blades, and he'd push me to the floor, and I'd grin, and I'd push back. I could do a push-up with Kevin on my back, okay? But I'd push that foot up, and he'd push me down. I'd push, and we'd do that for a few minutes, and he'd put his hands in his pocket and go... It's all going to burn, Jones. And then he'd go eat donuts in his room while I was out there working hard. Well, he kind of rained on your parade. No matter what you do to the human body, it's going to fail. And he kind of rained on my parade while I was trying to stay physically fit. Jesus tells these guys, look, those, those stones, they're not going to be one on top of the other. It's, it's all going to burn. And so I think it's quiet. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But in my mind, he's kind of chastised them, rained on their parade. They walk through the Kidron Valley. They go up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, and they sit down probably in Gethsemane, this little olive press that overlooks Jerusalem by about 200 feet. And so you get the scene change, verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And from that point on, Jesus begins a teaching. He begins a, a, a dialogue that's going to go all the way through the end of chapter 25. Now, the interesting part of this is the disciples think they've asked one question, and they've really asked two. They want to know when the temple's going to be destroyed, but in their minds, they can't imagine a world without a temple. So they think when you lose the temple, it's the end of the world. Dogs and cats living together, you know, I mean, it's just done. If you'd have told me 20 years ago, I'd look at the New York City skyline and not see those two buildings, that a foreign power would murder 3,000 of our people on our shore? <laughs> You've lost your mind. 
the world will end before that happens. Yeah, well, it happened, didn't it? These guys can't imagine a world where there's not a temple standing. And so in their minds, when they ask Jesus, hey, tell us about the end of the temple and the end of the world, they think it's the same event. It's actually two events. And he's going to flip back and forth between talking about them. First thing he does, notice in uh, verse 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For these things must come to pass. The end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and pestilence and earthquake in various places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. My grandmother was born in 1900. And she was a devout Bible reader. But she read a version of the Bible she really couldn't understand. It was written in you know, King James English. And uh, we'd be sitting there watching that black and white TV and a plane would crash or a train would wreck or there'd be a famine somewhere and Granny would go, wars and rumors of wars, wars and rumors of wars. Read your Bible, Granny. Jesus said, as long as there are people, they're going to fight. And as long as you live on a planet controlled by physics, you're going to get earthquakes and tornadoes and floods and pestilence and famines. Don't worry about it. That's the way the planet works. That's the way the planet works when it's controlled by sinful people and the way planets go through their life cycles and eventually they burn up. And so those kinds of things aren't predictive of anything. So Jesus says, look, don't get stressed out when there's wars. Don't get stressed out when there's a famine or a pestilence. or That's what happens when you live on a planet. And then he begins to tell them about some things that will happen with Roman persecution. He tells them that they're going to be delivered before synagogues. They're going to be delivered before tribunals. And then he tells them, you're going to see some things happen on this temple mount that you wouldn't believe is possible. And he says, those things, he uses two examples, they'll be as obvious as labor pains on a lady and the blossoms on a fig tree. When you see a fig tree blossom, summertime's here. And when a lady goes into labor, you know it. You know the difference between that and Braxton Hicks contractions. It's go time. He says, when you see these things happening, you'll know when the destruction of Jerusalem is coming. And in fact, it was pretty predictable. The, the Jewish zealots, you had your, your Pharisees, your Sadducees, your zealots, and your Essenes. And those are your, your four parties in the Jewish system. The zealots attacked a Roman outpost and killed most of the soldiers. And when they did, Vespasian said, we're done. Jerusalem been a hotbed. Jerusalem been a problem. Jerusalem was a, a deal breaker for politicians. Pontius Pilates, the pilot, the spear, he gets put as procurator over Jerusalem, and if he does this right, he'll be the next Caesar. After the trial with Jesus, and he gets manipulated into that by these rebellious high priests in the Sanhedrin, he disappears basically from history, ruins his political career. A lot of guys got broken on the rock that was Jerusalem. And so Vespasian says, okay, we've had this history with Jerusalem. They've always been allowed to keep their own temple cult, their own temple worship from the Maccabean Revolt on up to our time. And you know what? Done. And they massed the Roman army and head toward Jerusalem. And when the Romans came in to take over a place, they built a city around the city. They would line their men up after you'd been there for weeks with no food and feed them. They would line their men up and let them eat a banquet table in front of people standing on top of a wall that were starving to death. They Listen, they were brutal at what they did. They were the best in the world at it. 
So Vespasian is marching with a Roman army toward Jerusalem, and it's the end. But Vespasian gets a message. The Caesar has died. He takes that massive army and goes back to Rome. And once he gets back to Rome, he establishes himself as the Caesar. And one of the very first things he does as Caesar is he sends Titus, his son, says, we got a little unfinished business in Jerusalem. So there's two marches on Jerusalem. One is a partial march, and they get withdrawn. And the next time that Roman army comes, if you were paying attention, you'd have got out of town. Jesus says, look, hope that this doesn't happen if you're expecting a baby and hope it doesn't happen on the Sabbath day and hope it doesn't happen in the wintertime. But when Titus and his army got there, they besieged Jerusalem. They crucified a million people outside the city. When they tried to run, they caught them and nailed them up. And eventually, after a protracted siege, they break in the inner wall or the outer wall, fight between the walls. They break in the inner wall, and they take the city. Titus is standing in front of the temple and sends a message. What do I do about this temple? The message that is returned is, raise it. Not R-A-I-S-E, but R-A-Z-E, like I did in my head this morning. And they scrape it to the ground. The only thing left there is the foundation of the temple. Those Romans took it apart, brick by brick, stone by stone. There's a carving outside the city of Rome uh, called the Arch of Titus. And it's a bias relief carving. And there's a Roman standing with his foot up in a chair and he's holding a candlestick. That is the candle stand out of the temple of God, 70 A.D. from Jerusalem. They took it apart and took everything. And Jesus says, when, when you see the Roman army marching, it will be as obvious to you as labor pains on a lady, and as obvious as, as a fig tree in bloom. And once he gives them this information, and by the way, Josephus says there's not any documentable, provable evidence that a single Christian perished in the seas of Jerusalem. All the people that died in Jerusalem were non-believers, are not part of the Christian way, because they knew the prophecies, they knew the teaching of Jesus, and they vacated when the Roman army started in massing. So he stops talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and then he starts talking about the the end of the world. Look at verse 36 of chapter 24. But, there's your contrast. This is what's going to happen to Jerusalem. You can tell when it's coming. Fig trees and ladies in labor. Verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And as in the days of Noah were, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as it was before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And he basically says, look, I can tell you about Jerusalem. It'll be predictable. It'll be foreseeable. It'll be avoidable. End of the world, only person has that information is my father. He's not told me. He's not told the angels. It'll be just like Noah. It'll be a surprise event. And he starts there telling them how to perceive and think about the end of the world. Verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. He says, if you want to be prepared for the end of the world, then you've got to do the work of your master. You've got to be doing the things that he left you in charge of. And then he gives them some examples about what you should be doing. And they're pretty obvious examples. First story he tells is verse chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven, the coming of the end of the world, 
The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps but took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps, and while the bridegroom was delayed, they slumbered and slept. At midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. All those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, but the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but rather go to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. Those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. He said, you know, you can't predict when it's coming, but you can prepare for it. And preparing for it is fairly obvious. Now, in their culture, when somebody got married, the, the, the groom would come into town, make arrangements with the bride's father. They would get an engagement. He would go away prepare a place for her, and come back to receive her. That sound familiar to anything you've read in the Bible? So the big event was when the bridegroom came. Now, I like the way we do weddings better. The big event is when the bride walks down the aisle. I camp out half a day on a Saturday to watch a girl in a pretty white dress walk down an aisle. I wouldn't swim through chocolate milk with my mouth open to watch some dude walk down the aisle. But in their culture, they, it went backwards. So the big deal was the bridegroom. And if you're a young lady and you get invited to this event, you get asked to escort the bridal party, that's huge. So these girls, 10 of them are asked, will you be the escort party for the bridegroom? Yes, we will. Well, it's going to be an after dark wedding. Now, if you get invited to escort the bridal party after dark, what should you bring? A lamp. And if you're supposed to bring a lamp, what else should you bring? Oil. In the rescue business, in the tactical business, they teach us one flashlight is none, two flashlights is one. You don't go into any situation where you're dependent on light and only take one set of batteries, one bulb, or one light. You take it all. So these girls go to an after-dark wedding, and they take their lamps, but they don't take any oil. And everybody sitting here who hears that story goes, duh. How in the world do you end up at an after dark wedding where you've already been told to bring a lamp and you don't bring oil? How obvious is this deal? Second story, verse 14. Now the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country. He called his servants, delivered to them his goods, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each of them according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Now he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. Likewise, he who had received two gained two more, but he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money, and after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled the accounts with them. So he who had received the five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'll make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. 
He also who had received the two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I gained two more beside them. And his Lord said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew. Now, folks, if you ever make an excuse to your boss, don't go ahead and tell him what you already knew. That's just self-indictment. Daddy, I knew curfew was 1030, but I came in at 1040. Don't, don't start like that. That's a bad plan. Lord, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and I hid your talent in the ground. Look, here's what's yours. His Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew, he's quoting back to him his own indictment. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would receive back my own with interest, take the talent from him and give it to him as ten talents. To everyone who has more will be given. He will have an abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I know you've heard this lesson. And we talk about talents, and we make a play on words, and we make it about abilities and about things we can do. Folks, this story is about money. Look at the words account, money, and interest. I remember being in vacation Bible school. They're going to do the story of the talents. They take those little chocolate things that wrapped in silver foil, and they give five to this little girl. And they give two to the visitor, and they give one to me, and I always ate the chocolate. But I guess they, they were you know, kind of pegging the crowd. No, 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 no. A talent of silver is 75 pounds of silver. They would pour it into a single block and put an iron handle on it like a kettlebell. If you do CrossFit, think about a 75-pound kettlebell made out of solid silver. I did some conversions one time. At the time I did it, these numbers were accurate. They won't be accurate now probably. But, but when I did the conversion, this was $265,000. Your boss calls you into the office and said, I'm giving you a capital project of $265,000. At the end of the quarter, I will talk to you about this. What are you supposed to do with that money? You understand that? And it's not like it's a bad economy. The guy with five doubled his. The guy with two doubled his. And the master doesn't compare the guy with five did this and the guy. He gave them stuff according to their abilities. I trust you with five. I trust you with two. I trust you with one. And instead of taking that money and putting it in the bank, he hides it. If you were given a quarter of a million dollars and some change, from your company, and you went and stuck it under the mattress, and then in October, at the end of your fiscal year, you showed back up and said, well, boss, here's your money. What would happen to your career? It would have a ballistic glide path, like dropping a stone off Mount Cheha, right? This guy's given this vast amount of resources, and he's supposed to do something with it. In fact, he says, I knew you were a hard man. You reap where you have not sown, you gather where you have not Scattered seed. I didn't really understand that. I kind of thought this guy might be unscrupulous, but I visited a guy in Kentucky who had 2,500 acres of corn and 2,500 acres of beans. And he owned a, a, a machine he called a combine. The reason they call it a combine is it'll plant and it'll, it'll harvest. It'll do beans and it'll do corn. It's a combination worker. He said, I can get in my combine and I can harvest a 100-acre field in a day. 
He said, if I go driving home and I pass a guy with a five-acre field and he's out there hand-picking beans, he said, I can jump out of the cab of that truck and say, what you doing? Picking beans. How long is it going to take you? A month. Tell you what I'll do. I'll run my tractor through here in about 45 minutes. We'll be home in time to see the ball game. But I get 5% of this field. Done. He just now reaped where he has not sown. He's just gathered where he has not planted seed. He's a good businessman. He does business using his resources. This guy says, I knew that about you. And even though I knew it about you, I took $265,000 and I just hid it. And I hope you'll be happy to get your money back. And the boss says, you wicked and lazy. The least you could have done was let the bank have it, which is kind of an indictment against the banks. You know, That's a bad investment. You could at least done the 2% they'll give you. But because you didn't, take his assets away from him, give them to somebody else, and cast him out. If you've got any business sense at all, you understand what happens when your boss gives you a quarter of a million dollars and says, this is your project. We know what we're supposed to do with it, don't we? Then the third story. 31. When the Son of Man comes. Now, the first two are, it will be like this. The, the, the coming will be sort of like, this is emphatic. This is information. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and the holy angels with Him, He will sit on the throne of His glory, and all the nations will be gathered before Him. He'll separate them, one from another, as a shepherd divides sheep from the goats. And He'll set the sheep on His right hand, the goats on His left, And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. First of all, let's just chase a rabbit. God's intention is for us to be with him. He prepared a place with us in mind before he said, Let there be light. God wants fellowship with us. When Lonnie Beth told us she was expecting a baby, I had two 45-foot class 2 telephone poles delivered to my house. I built, started building a treehouse. It may be a little overdone. It's a 35-foot treehouse with a giant slide and 161-foot zip line and two stories. I'm in that business. Gunner's already been down the zip line in his car seat. has a six-point attachment and just... I mean, it's safe and what she doesn't know doesn't hurt her. But anyway... If I live long enough, and he gets old enough to actually play on that thing, we'll be sitting up there one afternoon. I go, you know, before I knew if you were a boy or girl, before I knew your name, I built this for you. I made this for this day so we could be up here right now. And that's what God said his intention is for us. I've prepared for you a home. Before the foundation of the world... I wanted us to be together. Now, how do you get this home? Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you didn't do it to me. 
Then he'll say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. God did not establish hell with you in mind. Hell was built as a containment area for rebellious angels and this celestial creature known as Satan. It wasn't built for you. He'll let you go there if you choose to. But he didn't build it with you in mind. He built a home with you in mind. Now, how do you end up in the devil's abode? Where I was hungry. And you gave me no food. I was thirsty. And you gave me no drink. I was a stranger. And you did not take me in. I was naked. And you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You didn't visit to me. And they'll answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger, naked or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you? And he will say unto them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away in everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Lord, tell us about the end of the world. I can't tell you when it will be. But I'll tell you how to prepare for it. See, if you get invited to an after-dark wedding, what are you supposed to take with you? A lamp. And if you take a lamp, what are you supposed to put in it? Oil. Your boss gives you $265,000 worth of silver. What are you supposed to do with that? Invest it. Make it grow. If you leave this building tonight and you see somebody who's sick or hurt or tired or hungry or afraid or weak or confined, what are you supposed to do about that? Duh. Huh. It's obvious. It's as obvious as oil in a lamp and money in the bank. How we manifest our Christianity. I use the phrase significant obscurity to describe what ministry is supposed to be. I teach that to youth ministers. They get all wrapped up that I get to travel places and speak. No, 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 no. My job is a little corner in North Alabama. 300 people at a church or 100 kids in a youth group. My ministry is the neighborhood I live in, the ball team my kid plays on, the houses I jog by, the place I pump gas, and where I buy my groceries. And when one of those people is sick or tired or hurt or hungry or lonely or weak or confined, it's my job. And if I don't do that, I'm not prepared for the coming of the Lord. Significant obscurity, it means that you may not know a hundred people, but the 25 people you know will be made better because they know you. Significant obscurity is one of those oxymorons. It's like jumbo shrimp or Kentucky football. It's things that doesn't sound like they go together. But what you've got to do with that is understand that, that if you do your job and influence your circle, and you influence your circle, and I influence, eventually those circles overlap. And we should not be guilty of bypassing the sick, the tired, the hurt, the scared, the grieving, the lost, the naked, the confined, or the weak. And when we see them, it's not the elder's responsibility, it's not the minister's responsibility, it's not the church, it's your responsibility. And significant obscurity simply means making a difference where I'm at at every moment I have the opportunity to do so. Oh yeah, if you get invited to a, a wedding after dark, take an oil and take a lamp and put oil in it. If, if you get given this a, a amount of money, you do something with it. Well, what happens if you get given the sick, the tired, the hungry, the hurt, the scared, the naked, the confined, the weak, and the grieving? 
obvious as oil in a lamp and money in the bank. Significance in our obscurity. And, and I know the church teaches this, and I don't disagree with it, okay? I think we live our lives in such a way that people should see Jesus in us. But I think it's way more important for us to see Jesus in them. Because that gentleman stands up and says, you know, i got a report today, Jesus is in the hospital. I'd have probably just left early and went to see him. Jesus is grieving. I'd be at that house. Hey, Jesus' house burned down. I'd go get, I wouldn't go get stuff out of my closet I don't wear. I'd go to the mall and buy nice stuff and take it to Jesus. But how do we treat these obvious opportunities for ministry? What are we doing when we pass by those people? What should we be doing? It's so obvious it's a duh moment. It's as obvious as oil in a lamp and money in the bank. You guys know who Morgan Freeman is? Mr. Freeman is an actor. He was actually born in Tennessee and moved to Mississippi, raised on a little farm just outside of Batesville, Mississippi. And after he got famous and did the Hollywood thing, he bought that little farm and added like 100 acres to it. His brother still lives in this little town outside Batesville, Mississippi, and his brother's a plumber. And he goes home and visits the farm, and his brother is always, hey, Morgan, you need to go down to the school. Morgan, you need to go meet the school children. Morgan, you need to go interact with the students. And, and uh, according to the article I read, Mr. Freeman has bought them computers and done some renovations to the school, but he'd never just been to the campus. And so one weekend, he's home. His brother's in his back pocket. Morgan, you need to, the children want to meet you. You're famous. You need to go sign autographs. Let's go down to the school. So they get up on a Monday morning and go to this little schoolhouse in, in rural Mississippi. They walk down the hall and just kind of pop into a second-grade classroom. They walk in the door, and the teacher goes, Students, look who's here. And a little boy in about the fifth row goes, It's the plumber. See, the plumber doesn't have a million dollars. And the plumber's not on a poster. And the plumber doesn't sign autographs. And the plumber doesn't have an Emmy or a Grammy or whatever they give those guys. But when that little boy's house was being ruined by a stopped-up toilet, the plumber showed up and made a difference. He's not famous. He's obscure. But he's significant in his obscurity. And when those pipes froze and we can't have my birthday party, somebody in a pair of coveralls crawled in that house and fixed that. And so when the famous guy and the obscure guy walk into the building, the little boy knows who the obscure guy is because the obscure guy was there when it made a difference. The obscure guy was there and it didn't involve power. It involved influence. What would happen if you walked into Walmart or Burger King, or the ball field, or the school, or your office, and people's reaction was, it's the Christian. Not because we're rich. Not because we're powerful. Not because we're famous. But simply because we're there when we can make some kind of a difference when somebody is naked, or hungry, or thirsty, or sick, or tired, or scared, or confined. That significant obscurity.
You do what you do where you do it because God's got a use for you there. And don't sell yourself short from taking advantage of what is so obvious in our everyday ministry. Christianity in this building is, is a shot in the arm. It's a relaxation. It's a time to praise and a time to commune. But real Christianity takes place outside these walls. And if it's not taking place outside these walls, then when the Lord comes back and He says, I'm going to call you into account for what you did with what you had, it won't be about oil in our lamps or money in our banks. What did you do with the hungry and the thirsty and the sick and the tired and the naked and the weak and the confined? It's obvious as oil for a lamp and money in the bank.